Thank you. It's good to be with you all again today. It's always a blessing uh, coming to uh, Southwest and, and preaching. And um, I'd like to start with prayer this morning. Lord, uh, we come to you today and we are so thankful to be yours. Those of us who know you, it is because of your grace. And we're so thankful for your word. It is alive. It is active. It is truth. It is life-changing. And Lord, I need you this morning. I, I, uh, I can't begin to, to communicate your truth well without your help. And I pray now that you would speak through me. And that you would take your living word and that you would penetrate the hearts of every single person in this room and others who are listening elsewhere. And that your truth would um, change us, Lord. And make us more like Jesus Christ. And we promise to give you the glory for doing that. In his high name, I pray. Amen. American author and naturalist Henry Thoreau put it well when he said, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The same is true for women as well. Um, we're all born with this void deep in our souls, and we're desperately trying to fill it. If you look around tomorrow at work or school or the neighborhood or the airport or mall or wherever you are, you will find uh, that the large majority of people are on this maddening pursuit through life, earnestly searching for answers to key questions like, why am I here? Where am I going? Uh, does my life matter? How can I find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life? And even if they're not consciously aware of those questions, subconsciously they are searching. In our passage from God's word today, we find a man who is on this desperate search. And because he is so wealthy, he experiences just about everything the world has to offer. And yet he still comes away empty. We learn volumes about the meaning of life and the source of true happiness from his journey. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. We're going to start with 1, but we're going to camp out in chapter 2. However, I want to show you a verse in chapter 1 first. Ecclesiastes is two books after the book of Psalms. So find Psalms and then go over to and you'll be there. And if you have the sermon notes, you could also, uh, those are also in your bulletin uh, as well. Most scholars agree that Ecclesiastes was written by David's son Solomon, who was the king of Israel several hundred years before Christ. Ecclesiastes is an unusual and puzzling book. In some ways, it's difficult to understand. Some have even said it is a very cynical book about life, and you'll see why as we uh, go today. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is nearing the end of his days on earth. He is looking back over his exciting life, and he's making some observations. Now, in order for this passage to have its full impact, you need to remember just who Solomon was. He wasn't your ordinary Joe. Uh, aside from being king, he was one of the richest men who has ever lived. Some scholars have suggested that his net worth to have been around $7 billion back then. God only knows how much that would be in today's dollars. The Bible tells us that Solomon was also one of the wisest men who has ever lived. He knew what it was like to be close to God, 
But sad to say, he also knew what it was like to be far from God, which was the case near the end of his life as his many foreign lives led him into idolatry. So this man had experienced everything the world has to offer, every indulgence that money could buy. And as he looks back on his life, this is what he concludes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Another version says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. How's that for a positive perspective of life? Now, it's important to understand that Solomon is talking about life without God here. Life's pursuits and pleasures without God at the center are meaningless, empty, and futile. And with that theme in mind, we're now ready to look at chapter 2, which you can turn over to, where Solomon reviews for us this desperate search for meaning and purpose in life. Some of you here today may be able to relate to this search. What's so amazing about the Bible is here that we have a book that was written over 2,500 years ago, and yet it's as relevant as today's news. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Solomon, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. When people are surveyed and they are asked the question, what do you want most in life? The number one answer by far with every age group is to be happy. Have you ever asked yourself, what can I do that will make me completely happy? Well, that is the essence of Solomon's statement here in verse 1. He says, I think I will try pleasure to test my heart and see if it will make me happy. Pleasure is the God of millions today, is it not? Um, Before he gives us the details of his pleasure-seeking exploits, Solomon summarizes his findings with that last phrase in verse 1, if you notice. But that also proved to be vanity or meaningless. In other words, living for earthly pleasure was empty, a waste of my time. Let's now read the details of his search, verses 2 and 3. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Stop there. So we see here the first place Solomon looked for pleasure was the party lifestyle of laughter, drinking, and debauchery, or folly, as our text says. With all of Solomon's wealth, you can imagine uh, what the scene must have looked like. The palace must have rocked with laughter. There were no doubt stand-up comics and lavish feasts and beautiful women. Later we read in this text that Solomon brought in musicians. Um, The wine was flowing like water and no doubt people were getting drunk. What was Solomon's conclusion about this party scene? Well, in verse 2, he says that this type of laughter is madness or foolishness. And sarcastically, he asks, what does pleasure accomplish? What use is it? Now, with that statement, Solomon is not putting down a good sense of humor or the value of laughter or even having a good party. No, the book of Proverbs talks about the value of 
uh, being happy and cheerful with these words, Proverbs 17.22. A cheerful heart is good medicine. So God-given joy and a cheerful heart are good for us. Frankly, I think more of us Christians need to loosen up and have more wholesome fun, not less. However, the type of laughter that Solomon is criticizing in this passage is the laughter that goes with the ungodly party lifestyle and excessive drinking and in today's world drugs and immorality and filthy language. Folly is the word that is used here. That type of laughter is so shallow, empty, and unfulfilling. Is it not? Those of you who are or have been in the party scene know that when the party is over, the laughter usually ends and the pain begins. I've been drunk one time in my life, and the hangover was terrible. Why do people keep doing that? You know, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I've heard of women who got so drunk at parties that they woke up in a strange man's bed the next day. And what's even worse, they don't remember what happened and how they got there. How many people today are killed every year from drunk drivers leaving a party? How many millions of alcoholics and drug addicts got their start from these binge drinking parties? Now, please, don't misunderstand. I, I'm not condemning all drinking of alcohol here. Uh, getting drunk is always a sin, but the Bible certainly allows for moderate drinking in the right situation. Jesus drank wine. In fact, Jesus turned 120 gallons of water into the best wine those people had ever tasted so a wedding party could continue. However, most drinking in the party scene today is anything but moderate and honoring to our Lord. And I'm amazed at how popular this party lifestyle and binge drinking is, especially among young people. Please listen, my friends, especially those of you who are younger. Don't be deceived by the laughter and pleasure that comes from the party lifestyle. Don't be deceived by the beer drinking commercials that make a wild and crazy night look like so much fun. At best, such a night ends in pain and heartache with a hangover. At worst, it ends in a rape or a sexually transmitted disease or an unwanted pregnancy or a fight or a car accident or death. Or it leads to the next drink, which leads to the next drink until there's an addiction. When Solomon realized that indulging in the party scene led to nothing but bad dreams and foolishness, he turned in another direction to try to find meaning in life. Great accomplishments, success at work, luxurious homes. Um, look at, at verses 4 through 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. It is said of the emperor Nero that he found Rome a city of bricks and he left it a city of marble. But history tells us that Nero's beautification projects was not for the benefit of Rome. It was for his own uh, indulgence and, and gratification and fame. Uh, we can't be sure of Solomon's motives, but he sure was a successful builder. 
His own mansion took 14 years to build. The great temple in Jerusalem took seven years to build. He also built houses for his many wives, so he brought into Jerusalem, spending time and money on them. We read here there were also luscious gardens and pools and groves of trees. Southwest of Jerusalem, in a place seldom visited by tourists, there exists today these vast depressions in the earth that are still referred to as the pools of Solomon. They were used to, as part of this elaborate irrigation system to water the fertile gardens and groves of trees which he planted in an effort to find satisfaction from his, his work. How many people today try to find happiness in their work accomplishments? Millions of workaholics find their primary significance in climbing the corporate ladder and completing significant projects at work, and then they receive praise and they get promotions. Pastors today are just as guilty of finding their value and worth in ministry as they try to grow bigger and bigger churches. It's such a vicious cycle because once a project is completed, you have to keep cranking them out in order to please the boss and climb the next rung in the ladder. Um, It never ends, and it never satisfies completely. And then there are millions of others today who get their enjoyment from nice homes. They spend huge amounts of money and time fixing up and adding to and maintaining their homes and manicuring their yards. After all, a man's home is his castle, right? Oh, my friends, let's learn some lessons from Solomon here. Don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with hard work and having nice homes and yards and finding satisfaction in your work. But without God at the center of your life, all of your work accomplishments and great projects and beautiful, expensive homes and luscious gardens and yards are meaningless and empty. Oh, they will bring you some pleasure for a season, which we will see in just a moment. But they will never fill that deep void within your soul. Neither will lots of money and luxurious living, which we see in the next section. Look at verses 7 and 8. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of a king's provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Many rich people often want someone else to do all the hard work for them, don't they? Solomon had scores of servants to wait on his every whim, and in this case, they were slaves, so they couldn't go on strike even if they wanted to. He also owned more cattle and sheep than anyone in Jerusalem at the time. As far as hard cash was concerned, he had massive amounts of silver and gold, uh, only like a king possessed. And we read here that he brought singers and musicians into the palace. There were sounds that probably rivaled the best we have today. No doubt the the Jerusalem Pop Orchestra or the Hebrew Jazz Band played their music under the stars while people sipped on their wine. It's all very up to date, isn't it? I mean, we think we've invented this, uh, this style of lavish living, and yet here we see it in the ancient book of Ecclesiastes. And finally, Solomon had playmates. Sort of like the late Hugh Hefner did at his Playboy Mansion, 
Solomon had lots of young women running around the palace. Verse 8, and my translation says concubines. Some of your translations in verse 8 have the word harem. Many of you are aware of Solomon's huge harem. It's legendary. Listen, uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 3, I quote, He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Are you kidding me? It's all I can do to keep up with the one beautiful woman God has blessed me with, right? A thousand women. Solomon had a thousand women available to him day and night to indulge his every sexual urge and sensual desire. He lived the life of a playboy. There are men today who would give their right arms for this kind of lifestyle. Wine, women, songs, wealth, luxurious living, expensive homes. And yet Solomon says it's all meaningless, vanity, a chasing after the wind. A final thing that he mentions here is fame and popularity. Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem Also, my wisdom remained with me. Many today think that fame will satisfy this emptiness of the heart. There are people in Hollywood this morning who would sell their souls for one moment of fame. There are junior high and high school students who will do almost anything to be popular and cool among their peers. Popularity is their God. Peer pressure controls just about everything they do, from the clothes they wear to the music they listen to, the shows they watch, the games they play, the activities they enjoy, the the people that they choose for friends. They do it all to be cool, popular, and accepted. Solomon found fame and popularity. He gained notoriety. He says here he became greater than anyone else in Jerusalem. People stood in line for hours just to get his autograph. The paparazzi followed him wherever he went. And what's amazing is that unlike most rich, successful, famous people, Solomon also kept his objectivity. He did not let the popularity go to his head. If you notice that last phrase in verse 9, he says, In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. He says the same thing back in verse 3. In other words, I didn't lose my reasoning ability in this wild search for pleasure. I was able to look at myself and honestly evaluate uh, things as I went along. And thus what I am telling you in this passage is an accurate observation of where earthly pleasures without God will lead you. Empty. And thus he summarizes his search in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And thus, this was my reward for all my toil. In other words, Solomon the billionaire indulged his every whim. Whenever he saw someone or something that he thought would bring him pleasure, he got it. Nothing was off limits. And I appreciate Solomon's honesty here. He does admit that there was some temporary pleasure and enjoyment in his exploits. He says in verse 10, My heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was the reward for my toil. 
I mean, let's not kid ourselves. There is pleasure and enjoyment that comes from the things and experiences of this world. And many of those things are not sinful in and of themselves. In fact, many of them are gifts from God. And so is the enjoyment a gift from God. For example, there is pleasure that comes from being married and having children. At least until they become teenagers, right? (laughs) Just kidding, teenagers. There is pleasure in owning a home or buying a new car or succeeding in your job or or getting good grades at school. There is enjoyment in tasty foods and, and enjoying physical intimacy in the marriage relationship. If done in the right setting and in moderation, God designed those things for our enjoyment. In fact, 1 Timothy 6.17 in the New Testament says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So when you hear me say the words meaningless and empty and futile and vanity a hundred times today, please do not conclude that we should not get any enjoyment and fulfillment from earthly things and relationships. That would be a wrong conclusion. God wants us to enjoy His gifts. And there is even pleasure that comes from sin and the party lifestyle. And sometimes that pleasure is quite intense for a season. But there's a problem. The pleasure never lasts and it never permanently satisfies your deepest needs. And the pleasure that comes from sin will always lead to heartache eventually. That is why Solomon summarizes the way he does in verse 11. Look, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So here is a man who had everything the world has to offer, and yet at the end of the day, and the end of his life, he still comes away completely dissatisfied. Why? Well, one reason is because his motives were completely selfish. He did it all for himself. In fact, if you were to go back through this passage we just went through, you would find that Solomon made more than 30 references to himself and all that he did and his glory and his kingdom and not even one remote reference to God. It was all about him. It was all about his glory and building his little kingdom here on earth. However, the Bible teaches another path to true happiness The Bible teaches that the greatest love of all is not a love for ourselves, as the late Whitney Houston so beautifully sang. No, the greatest love of all is a love for God and the kingdom we must passionately pursue first here on earth is his kingdom, not our little kingdoms. And that brings us to the ultimate purpose of life. I want to share it with you this morning. First of all, please realize that you're not an accident or a mistake or some chance product of evolution. The Bible teaches that you're one of a kind, uniquely and wonderfully created by God in His image and for His purposes. And the primary purpose God has for you is to bring glory to Himself. According to the Bible, your life is more about God than it is about you. 
couple of verses I put on the sermon notes. The first one is 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So even in the mundane, routine activities of life, such as eating and drinking, we can do them in such a way that brings glory to God. And then Romans 11.36, speaking of God, says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. If you notice the prepositions in that verse, the first one is from Him. Do you realize that everything good you have in life is a gift from God? Your family, your health, your strength, your good looks, intelligence, job, your skills and abilities, your accomplishments, your salvation in Christ, all of that and so much more comes either directly or indirectly from God. The next preposition in the verse is through him. Everything in the universe is sustained and held together through God's mighty power. If he took his hands off of this universe for a second, we would all disintegrate. And one day everything will return back to him. Third preposition. So from him and through him and to him are all things. And thus God deserves all of the glory for everything good in our lives. Amen. In 1647, a group of 150 eminent scholars and theologians gathered together in Westminster, England to write a theological creed that has come to be known as the Westminster Catechism. And in that document, those scholars asked and answered life's most important question. They worded it like this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, why are we here? What is our ultimate purpose? The answer to that question, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is this, and I quote, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. No truer words have ever been written, my opinion. Now, if the truth be known, most people today are too proud to agree with that statement. Like Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, most people today live to glorify and please themselves rather than God. But my friends, I am here to tell you that you will not find ultimate meaning and happiness and fulfillment in life until you realize your ultimate purpose. You were made by God and for God. You were made to bring Him glory. You see, we're all created to be worshipers. The only question is, who or what are you worshiping this morning? Are you worshiping God or some aspect of His creation? So we exist to bring glory to God. How do you glorify God with your life? I'm glad you asked. The first step is to embrace his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord, Savior and greatest treasure. And that requires two things, according to Scripture, repentance and faith. Repentance is humbly acknowledging your sinfulness and need for a Savior. And again, most people today are far too proud to to go there. They don't think they're that bad. It is crying out for mercy and forgiveness and being genuinely sorry for your sin to the point of turning from it to embrace Christ. Saving faith is believing with all of your heart that the shed blood of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago fully paid the penalty that your sins deserve and that he rose from the grave. And you must believe those truths so deeply that you become a lifelong follower of Christ, not just a fan of Jesus. There are millions of fans of Jesus today who do not follow him and they do not treasure him. 
They're not Christians. And what's so cool about having Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and greatest treasure and living for His glory rather than your own is you will find that lasting happiness and peace and fulfillment that you're so desperately looking for. Now, I know that sounds crazy. How can living for the glory of another person result in you experiencing lasting happiness, joy, and satisfaction in life? But that is exactly what happens. Not all the time, not 24-7, not perfectly, but progressively. Remember the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. Scriptural support. A few verses. Um, Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Nehemiah 8 verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16, speaking of God, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Wrap your mind around that thought. You were actually created to enjoy God forever. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's gifts. He wants you to enjoy His gifts as long as you enjoy Him more. He has to be our greatest treasure. Amen? And that leads me to one of my favorite sayings that you have heard me say before, probably, if you've heard me preach, and it's this. God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in Him. Think about how much glory it brings to Him. When you tell people and show people by the way you live that nothing satisfies you like God does in Jesus. That brings Him so much glory. Now, I have to pause here for a moment for some honest reflection. I realize that there are lots of non-Christians around the world today, especially in affluent America, who are living some form of the pleasure-seeking lifestyle that Solomon describes in this passage of Ecclesiastes 2. Some are in the ungodly party scene. In fact, millions are in the ungodly party scene. Others are finding their greatest joy in work or significant accomplishments. Still others in family or friends and relationships or hobbies or homes or sports or philanthropic activities of helping others. And they would say, Jeff, I don't need Jesus. He may be good for you and other Christians, but not for me. I am completely happy and fulfilled in life just the way I am. And I don't think my life is worthless and meaningless like the author of Ecclesiastes says here. This is simply not true. And we Christians need to admit that. We think that most unbelievers are miserable. Not so in America. Millions would say they are completely satisfied without Christ. What do you say to them? And before I answer that, let me share with you something even more shocking. There are Christians and professing Christians who are in a similar place. I call it spiritual complacency and idolatry. 
For sure they know they need Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and by faith they are trusting in him alone for forgiveness of sins and salvation. But far too often they then turn. We just sang the song early in the doxology. Our hearts are prone to wander from the God we love. And we turn, they turn from their God to try to find their greatest joy and satisfaction elsewhere. I talk about this often because it's one of our greatest struggles as Christians. Chances are good that some of you here today are trying to find your deepest joy, not in the pleasures of this world. You know that's wrong. But rather in good things. Things like your family. Or your friends, or job, or education, or church ministry, your hobbies, your homes, or cars, or other gifts from God. You realize that God has blessed you so much, and your heart is filled with thanks to God for His many blessings. And you think that because of that, you're right where you should be. But in reality, God is not your greatest treasure. Someone or something else is. One of his gifts is. But you are content and thankful with God not being your greatest treasure. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this idolatry in his book, The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses. And I quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Unquote. Hear me well this morning. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, when you are completely satisfied with earthly things and relationships, you are far too easily pleased. You call it contentment. God calls it idolatry. I know it's crazy. It's crazy to think that our thankfulness to God for His gifts can be idolatry if He's not our greatest treasure. It's the illustration I've used before. It's like the woman who marries the rich man for his money and all the things his money can buy, but she doesn't love him. And when God is not treasured for the beauty of His glory, and we are just married to Him because of His gifts, that's not worship. That's idolatry. Hmm. And we're all guilty. And in those situations, we are eating mud pies in the slums when God offers us this holiday banquet at the sea and you may not even realize what you're missing. Take it from someone who's eaten a lot of mud pies. The joy that you find in earthly things and relationships doesn't begin to compare with the joy and satisfaction you find in Christ. C.S. Lewis calls it infinite joy. But we must fight for this joy. It doesn't always come easily. Have you noticed? I love what one theologian said years ago. Our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are continually cranking out idols. 
as we just sang, even as Christians, our hearts are prone to wander from the God we love, to try to find our fulfillment and joy elsewhere. Uh, And all of us have eaten mud pie idols when we should be feasting on our beloved Christ, who is the bread of life and the spring of living water. I love Jeremiah, how Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, you have the spring of living water right here that you can drink from, but instead you turn to broken cisterns that hold no water. And you're trying to drink from these broken cisterns. And we walk away from the spring of living water. And we're all guilty. As much as you enjoy your family and your children and sex inside of your marriage and job satisfaction and doing well in school, there's infinitely more joy found in Christ. Let's learn some valuable lessons from one of the richest, wisest men who has ever lived, King Solomon. He tried everything the world today says you need to have to bring you happiness. He tried pleasure in the party lifestyle. He tried great building projects and beautiful houses and palaces and gardens. He tried job satisfaction and wealth and and luxurious living. He tried lots of women and sensual pleasure. He tried fame and popularity. But at the end of his life, when he looked back on it all, his conclusion was it was all vanity and meaningless. Without God as your greatest treasure, all of life's pursuits and pleasures and relationships will eventually lead to emptiness. I say eventually because you might be in the middle of them right now and you're having a great time. And there's some fun and enjoyment And Solomon admits that, that you can find some temporary joy and happiness in worldly pursuits and relationships. But that fulfillment will never touch the depth of your soul and fulfill your deepest needs. You say, Jeff, what are our deepest needs? Here are a few of them. We're all created with the need to be unconditionally loved by a perfect love that can only come from God. There's the need to have all of your sins forgiven and atoned for and all of your guilt and shame removed. There's the need to be radically transformed from the inside out into a brand new person. There's the need to be reconciled to God. In fact, I would say this is probably our greatest need. To be reconciled and at peace with the God who made you. Because if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, you are God's enemy, the Bible says. You may not feel like it. But you are his enemy and you're not at peace with him and you need to be reconciled. You see, God created us with these deep needs that can only be met in Christ. And we're trying to get them everywhere else. The fourth century theologian, Augustine, said it well when he when he wrote, our souls will remain restless until they find their rest in you, O God. And I pray that. I pray that for unbelievers, that I am praying for their salvation. Lord, help them to be restless until they find their rest in Christ. Also, worldly successes will never help you when you're standing before God on Judgment Day to give an account for your life. And every single one of us will do that. 
You're there before God on Judgment Day. But yeah, uh, Lord, I, I built this beautiful home. You should see the backyard. It's really like uh, a show yard. Or I did well at work. Or made lots of money. I'm not going to help you one bit on Judgment Day. Henry Thoreau was right when he said the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Most every human is desperately searching for meaning and purpose in life, whether they realize it or not. Please don't wait till you get to the end of your days, a short time from now, to realize that true joy and fulfillment in life doesn't come from living for your own glory in earthly pursuits and relationships. Rather, true joy in life and fulfillment comes from living for God's glory and enjoying Him forever and pursuing His kingdom first rather than your own little kingdom. Could I challenge you as a congregation to ask God for grace to help you embrace Jesus as your greatest treasure more and more each day and show the people around you the difference that makes in your life. Let's be a congregation of who lives for God's glory and realizes that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Not in His gifts. Not in earthly pursuits and relationships. Not in money or fame or power or pleasure, but in Christ. Amen? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Take us there, Lord. Amen? Take us there, Lord. Right now, uh, I, I trust the Spirit is speaking to you. It's time maybe for us to go on an idle search. An idle search. Is there someone or something or some activity right now in your life that you're treasuring more than Christ? Uh, I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to non-Christians. Maybe you need to repent. If that's the case, you do need to repent. And it may be that you need to take some radical action. And to bring Jesus back to your first love and your greatest treasure. Lord, I just pray that we would learn some lessons from Solomon. Everything this world says um, will bring us happiness and pleasure and fulfillment and joy. Solomon tried. And it left him empty. Lord, I pray for any unbelievers listening to this sermon that you would create in them a holy discontentment and a restlessness that will stay there until they find their rest in you. Would you stir their hearts to see their sin like you see it and their desperate need for forgiveness and a Savior and reconciliation with you through Christ. And would you bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus, Lord? Only you can do that, and we will give you the glory for that. And for those of us who know you, Lord, we are sorry for our idolatry. There are times when I get more excited about a a delicious meal than I do worshiping you at church. 
There are times, Lord, when I have made idols out of my beautiful grandchildren. And I've put them ahead of you for a period. Lord, we, we're sorry for that. We're trying, to, we're trying to quench our thirst from broken cisterns that hold no water, or they hold very little water when we have the spring of living water available. Help us to drink from that spring more and more each day. Please, oh God, take us there. And we need your grace to take us there. To renounce our idolatry. To stop eating mud pies in the slums. And to start feasting on you. This holiday banquet that's ours 24-7. Take us there, Lord. And we promise to give you glory now. And as we partake of communion now, we are feasting on you. Oh, Lord. Take us there in Jesus' name. Amen.